as just having been beaten by a mob. The mob had the intention of killing him. And in all likelihood, every word that he's going to speak tonight is done while he's bloody and disheveled. In order to maintain some sense of momentum, we want to go over some things we covered last week. Let's start in Romans and remind you of why Paul was in Jerusalem in the first place. So this comes from Romans 15, and I'm going to start in verse 25. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. So Paul has not been in Jerusalem since Acts 18. That was before his three-year stint in Ephesus. In other words, it's been a long time. He spent the last period of many years expanding the kingdom in synagogues and among Gentiles. It's evident from Paul's writings that everywhere he went, he taught Gentiles about their responsibility to the chosen people through whom Adonai's plan was revealed And the only way Adonai's plan would come about. This really is Paul's lasting witness and testimony to the nation that he loved and that he belonged to. Paul took great care to make sure that he arrived during Pentecost so that he could present his offering as an act of devotion on the same day that was the anniversary of the law. Come on. Every bit of the context in Acts 21 and really in the entire book of Acts as a whole, presents Paul as a Torah-observant Jew who had a revelation of the way and of the branch of David that is the king of the way that Adonai is using to fulfill his promise to Israel and really the rest of the world through Israel. So not only should you envision Paul as a Torah-observant Jew, You should also picture him as a woolly Nazarite who has been in the highest state of devotion that an Israelite can be in without being a Levitical priest for many years now. Remember, number six outlines the special act of devotion prescribed within the Torah for a man who wants to be especially devoted to the law and the Lord. You may remember this slide from our last session. The realization of a priestly life. The time that the Nazarite vow lasted was not a lazy life, involving a withdrawal from the duties of citizenship, but it was perfectly reconcilable with the performance of all domestic and social duties, the burial of the dead alone accepted. The position of the Nazarite, as Philo, Maimonides, and others clearly saw, was a condition of life consecrated to the Lord resembling the sanctified relation in which the priests stood to Yahweh and differing from the priesthood solely in the fact that it involved no official service at the sanctuary and was not based upon a divine calling and institution, but was undertaken spontaneously for a certain time and through a special vow. The object was simply the realization of the idea of a priestly life with its purity and freedom 
from all contamination from everything connected with death and corruption. A self-surrender to God, stretching beyond the deepest earthly ties. In this respect, the Nazarite sanctification of life was a step toward the realization of the priestly character, which had been set before the whole nation as its goal at the time of its first calling in Exodus 19. And although it was simply the performance of a vow and therefore a work of perfect spontaneity, it was also a work of the Spirit of God which dwelt in the congregation of Israel so that Amos could describe the raising up of Nazarites along with prophets as a special manifestation of divine grace. Come on. So many people forget that Adonai's original intention for every single Israelite was to create an entire nation of priests. Yeah. This nation would be considered holy and royal in their service to the rest of the world. This national calling was delayed through disobedience, and the Levites were chosen because of their obedience as a priesthood within the priestly nation. However, the intention of Adonai never deviated from transforming every single Israelite into the royal priesthood that would be his treasured possession. Amen. These words were stated many times and in many passages within the Tanakh. Let's review a handful of them together, starting in Genesis 12, verse 1. We're going to start in verse 2. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Yeah. The great nation that was to be born of Abraham is the nation of Israel. Adonai made the end goal of Abraham's calling clear from the very onset of it. The nation coming from Abraham was to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. The testimony of the nation of Israel would begin from the, bare, from the bareness and the inability of Abraham and Sarah to be able to bring it about. The testimony would go on to display the supernatural ability of Adonai to bring the nation into existence through his spoken word and promise. This promise would be tested through trials and through tribulations, like the Egyptian period of slavery. Yeah. However, just as Adonai spoke the nation into existence, he was also able to deliver and transform slaves yeah. into the treasured possession of royal priests that he desired. Amen. That's good news. That is. Let's also look at how Adonai reaffirmed and stated that promise on the original day that the law was given during the season of Pentecost. This is from Exodus 19, starting in verse 5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Yeah. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So, on the day that the law was given, Adonai's intentions were plainly stated. Yeah. The supernatural nation would become a kingdom of priests. This process, like the call of Abraham, would require trust-grounded obedience yeah. that would transform the people from slaves into priests. Oh, the emphasis on the uniqueness of Israel as a treasured possession 
was still aimed at the whole earth that belonged to Adonai. In other words, the purpose for Adonai's working in Israel was to use the offspring of Abraham to bless all the families of the earth. In many ways, Paul is an excellent example of this kind of priesthood. He is a naturally born Israelite that was supernaturally transformed into the kind of priest that Adonai promised to bring about through this prophet. All of the law, prophets, and writings are aimed at the original goal of Adonai. In the barrenness of human effort, the ability of Adonai to perform his promise would break forth in supernatural brilliance. Come on. Say supernatural brilliance. Supernatural brilliance. (laughs) So consider this prophecy given about 800 years after the Levitical institution commits. This is Isaiah 61, picking up in 5. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priest of the Lord. Amen. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Our point is that even during the administration of Levitical priests, another kind of broader priesthood is spoken about that fulfills the desire of Adonai for the national destiny of Israel. Again, Paul is an an Israelite that is behaving like a priest to the world and who is also bringing the wealth of the nations back into Israel. Yes! This is because men (coughs) men of the nations were beginning to experience the same kind of supernatural transformation that began in the heavenly priesthood of Israel. Amen! The followers of the way were originally all Jewish men and women who became exactly what Adonai predicted, a heavenly and royal priesthood within Israel. It was a mystery that Gentiles could be grafted into this more heavenly priesthood, but it was never a mystery that this is the destiny for all Israel. That's true. So since last session, we had the opportunity to examine the manner in which a Gentile could join in the priestly destiny of Israel. We did this from the book of Hebrews, where Jesus is described as the high priest of the heavenly priesthood promised to Israel. Now in the Bible you learn that the high priest was the head of a family of priests, whose sons and brothers served as priests as well. A Gentile gains admission into this family by being born of heaven rather than mere natural descent. The righteous one did not establish his heavenly priesthood through a natural descent from Levi, but rather, as an Israelite, he displayed trust-grounded obedience unto death. His father showed his approval by raising him from the dead in the power of an indestructible life. Come on! This is also the basis for our inclusion into this priesthood. That's right. Jesus was the first fruits of Israelites who were declared with power to be heavenly priests. Then came all of the followers of the way in the early years of the believing community. Lastly, in the revelation of a mystery, men of other nations who benefited by Israel's heavenly priesthood were also declared with power to be priestly because of the indestructible life they now shared in, along with believing Israelites. Amen. These things are deep, and they warrant a lifetime of study rather than a cursory overview. That's true. We suggest that you study the book of Hebrews with diligence and ask your father for greater insight into the depths of the riches that you now share in. 
We also intend to spur you on by reminding you of this slide from Hebrews 7, the attributes of our higher priesthood. You see, the first one is that we are blessed by Abraham. Galatians 3 enumerates the way that we, as Gentiles, have become sharers in that blessing. A king of righteousness. We are with him in Revelation 17. He is the king of kings. Yeah. A king of peace. Matthew 5 describes what it looks like for us to be peacemakers. Without father or mother, i.e. eternally birthed. This is what the opening of John's gospel is about. The right to be birthed again as a son of God. Number five, without ending of days. 1 John 2 declares that we will experience immortality. Number six, in the likeness of the Son of God. 1 John 3 says that we will become like him, the Son of God. Number seven, a forever priest. This is the goal of the whole Bible. Revelation 20 lays out that we will become a forever eternal priesthood in the order of our high priest. Amen. In all honesty, sharing these things with you is getting a little ahead of the story we're reading. But it was so good that we couldn't help ourselves. The thing to remember is that these promises were given to and displayed in Israel first. The intention of forming a heavenly priest on earth, it was a promise to Israel before it was revealed as available for men of any other nation. One of the reasons that we went into the subject was because Paul is clearly portrayed in this light during Acts 21. Paul is an excellent example of an Israelite that is a priest to the nations of the world and who also sees men of the nations transformed into a higher priesthood themselves. Oh, yeah. Come on. You still with us, Abby? Amen. She's suffering the loss of Luke here later. Oh, well, he didn't die. He just went to Chicago. Let's get back into the historical aspects of our review from Acts 21. Yeah. This slide was called a five-fold Nazarite witness during the anniversary of the law. You remember that Acts 20.16 says, For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. You remember this is because Pentecost served to memorialize the day that the Torah was originally given. It's an anniversary event. Like ours coming up soon, honey. Amen. Oh, yeah. yeah. Acts 21, verse 23. We have four men who are under a vow. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them. And he went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled, and the offering presented for each one of them. That's important. This makes a total of five believing Jewish followers of the way that engaged in the highest act of voluntary devotion that is described within the Torah. This was a witness to their nation, and it was an offering towards Adonai. Now, almost all Christian commentators have failed to see the significance of this kind of witness. Put simply, it is proof of concept. Adonai was able to take non-Levitical Israelites and then transform them by their trusting in the righteous one into priestly figures that displayed the higher priesthood to Israel and the nations of the world. Come on. These are all men 
who embrace the Torah of God in right relationship to saving faith in the work of the high priest, Jesus. As you already know, this did not immediately result in national transformation of Israel. True. There would be, and still are, trials ahead of that particular event. But these events are absolutely proof that Adonai's promises have not failed. Amen. And that they will be accomplished through the nation. Amen. Faithless men who do not understand the concepts laid out in the Tanakh have often come to the conclusion that Israel has been replaced by or re-identified as some other group of people. This is not true. In fact, Israel's resistance to these events was foretold in advance, just like their ultimate transformation was also foretold in advance. Yeah, it was. Let's look at the predicted resistance. Amos, shepherd and tender of sycamore figs. In Amos 2, 4 through 6, we read, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord, and have not kept his statutes. But their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver. Wow. Skipping down to verse 11 through 12, because that's grim. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets wow. and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. So the selling of the righteous for silver was recorded and predicted in multiple places within the Tanakh. So was the emergence of Israeli prophets and Nazarites. What is more, it is that the nation is said to actively work against this process. There, there may be no better personal history to study regarding these events than Paul himself. Yeah. He was an Israelite, a prophet, and a Nazarite. Wow. This is because Paul experienced the resistance of national Israel to the desire of Adonai to transform them into his priesthood. And yet, Paul still understood the destiny of the nation and faithfully maintained trust that Adonai would bring about the promise that he always made towards them. Yeah. If Paul didn't lose hope, how could we? Come on. Yeah. We're going to go to Romans now as our next scripture. Romans 11, starting in verse 15. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what would their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Amen. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. Yeah. And if the root is holy, then so are the branches. Jesus is the righteous one, the branch of David. This means that he is an Israelite who is a non-Levitical priest. As the high priest of the heavenly order, Jesus has supernaturally grafted in unnatural branches into the priesthood. That's you. Since he can graft in unnatural branches, that means he can certainly graft in the original cultivated branches into the priesthood. 
The nation has always been destined to become, and of course we're speaking about Israel. Again, guys, if you do not understand these things yet, stop reading commentaries and start reading Romans chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11. Our Father will give you insight into these Peshat verses. Yeah. So, now that we understand Paul's testimony as an apostle, prophet, and Nazarite, who maintains Adonai's desire to transform Israel into their destiny as a priestly nation, let's examine their opposition. Yeah, oh yeah. The opposition was based entirely on misunderstanding the law and Paul's own intentions. This slide is titled The Three Initial Accusations. So the first one, they said, this is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people. However, Paul in Romans 9.3 says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Sounds like he negated that. Second accusation, this is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our law. Not true. Yet, in Romans 7.12, Paul says, so the law is holy, yes, it is. and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Oh, yeah. The third accusation said, this is the man who teaches all men everywhere against this place, that is the temple. And yet Paul in Acts 24, 16 says, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple oh, yeah. without any crowd or tumult but some Jews from Asia blah 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 <laughs> Paul was not against his own people No, he was an advocate of their transformation yeah. into the stated intention of Adonai yeah. Paul was not against the law of Adonai no. he was an advocate for the right uses and properly implemented intention of the Torah yeah. Paul again was not against the temple of God he was an advocate of the right use of the temple as the shining beacon of light to the oh, nations of the yeah. world yeah. in priestly service. Come on. The unbelieving Jewish population approached the law as if it was in their human efforts, uh, they would uphold their salvation. Paul taught rightly from the Torah that the law was upheld by, by faith in Adonai's transforming power. The unbelieving Jewish population saw Gentiles as enemies of the nation. Paul taught rightly that the destiny of Abraham and his descendants was to be a blessing to the nations of the world. Amen. We could go on and on like this forever, but this is a review. It's true. Paul believed the truth of the Tanakh and operated as a heavenly priest to his nation and the world, while the unbelieving Jewish population manipulated the Torah to protect carnal and worldly applications of the divine revelation that they believed were in their national or personal interest. As an example of this from Acts 21, uh, is found in the Asian believer Trophimus. He is a Gentile that has come to love the God of Israel through the ministry of Paul and personal experience with Jesus, the righteous one. His presence in Jerusalem was an act of devotion to the God of Israel. There's no evidence that he was near the temple, that he went near the temple, but even if he had gone near it, 
This would have been perfectly in line with the purpose of the temple itself. Come on. Guys, before I go to Solomon's prayer, I want you to catch part of the accusations are that they're saying Trophimus was brought into the temple. There's no indication in the text that he was brought anywhere near the temple. But it wouldn't have been a problem if he drew near according to the scripture itself. Yeah. Here's Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 8, 41. Good. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel. Can we be any clearer? We're talking about a Gentile. Yeah. Yeah. But it has come from a distant land because of your name. Like Asia. Asia. For men will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm when he comes and prays toward this temple. Then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people Israel. And may know that this house I have built bears your name. Notice that the Tanakh encourages foreigners to come near to the temple Amen. and draw near to Adonai. Yes. After all, that would be the point of being a priestly nation to the world. Exactly. Yeah, a priest is supposed to cause you to want to draw near. Yeah. However, the unbelieving Jewish population was consumed with deceptive and deviant views of the law because they approached the law improperly. Their motive for the riot of Acts 21 was based purely on misapplication of the law and misunderstanding of the intentions of Paul. Trophimus was never seen in restricted areas of the temple, and the purpose of the temple, according to Isaiah 56, verse 7, was to be a house of prayer for all nations, including Asia. The confrontation that ensued was not because Paul disregarded Torah, but rather because unbelieving Jews misapplied the Torah and had a satanic desire to kill Paul. Oh. You all following along? Yeah. yeah. Let's review a slide from Acts 21. Paul, Trophimus, and the death penalty. Although scripture welcomed Gentiles to the temple, that's the reference we read earlier from Solomon's prayer, a later understanding of purity, a later understanding of purity, a later understanding of purity led to their separation from the court of Israel exclusively for Jewish men and even the court of women, which excluded Gentiles, according to Josephus. The barrier between the outer court open to the Gentiles and the court of women was about four feet high, so the Asians couldn't see over it. <laughs> With warning signs posted at intervals in Greek and Latin, any foreigner who passes this point will be responsible for their own death. Wow. While you're engaging with that, contrast that warning with the very prayer of dedication to the temple that Solomon prayed. These inscriptions are reported in ancient literature, and one has been found by archaeologists. This was the one offense for which Jewish authorities could execute capital punishment, even on Roman citizens without having to consult with Rome. Now you may remember that Jesus came into direct contention with the misuse of the temple during his ministry as well. This was not because Jesus disregarded the Torah. After all, Jesus said in Matthew 5.16, in the same way, let your light shine before others 
so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them, whoever what? Does them. And teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The problem was never with the law itself, but rather with the deviations from the intention of the law that were being practiced by the unbelieving Jews, at least portions of the Jewish population. When these practices were confronted, the confrontation often revealed satanic desires in the unbelieving Jewish population. After all, Jesus was killed. Stephen was killed. True. And other believing Jews were killed for applying the Torah correctly. Men like James, the judge. This was not because they disregarded the Torah. In a supernatural turn of events, Jesus and Stephen both expressed their desire for Adonai to forgive the nation so that the nation would ultimately reach its priestly calling. Wow. You get that? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Now Paul, who had previously been in the guilty opposition party and is one of the men who had to be forgiven for the death of Stephen, yeah. is being attacked precisely because he is living in obedience to the law and applying the intention of the law properly, which is by faith. One of our favorite moments from last week was the slide on the seven similarities between Jesus and Paul. This is particularly profound because it is the destiny of all true believers to walk in the manner that Jesus walked. Yes. You may not realize it yet, but the entire book of Revelation is dedicated to the bride of Christ, walking in the very footsteps of Christ, perfectly reflecting the groom. That's good. In our last session, the book of Hebrews was synthesized and summarized by the intention of Adonai to bring about the heavenly priesthood. The culmination of the Bible is when that priesthood reflects Jesus during intense opposition in the same manner that a bride is to reflect her husband. Come on. To learn more about that, we would have to teach the apocalypse. Instead, Let's just review our last slide from last week and tell you that you too must walk as Jesus walked. Amen. Are you with us? If we can synthesize and summarize the book of Hebrews for you yeah. and tell you the major thesis of the book of Revelation, what else could we do besides juggle elephants that would get your attention? Do we have your attention? Yes. So let's look at the similarities between Jesus and Paul. They both had their journey towards death begin with a plot of the Jews. They both did seemingly unclean things, but they did not make them unclean because they did it miraculously. Amen. They both were handed over to the Gentiles. 
They both had a threefold prediction of the suffering ahead. They both were consumed with the willingness to die with a statedly resolute disposition. They both were numbered with transgressors. And they both had the words shouted at them, away with him. As we get into the dark and difficult events of our chapter tonight, let's do so on a hopeful note. Adonai is able to bring about what he has promised for the nation of Israel and for all of mankind. The mounting opposition to his promises only serves to illustrate his magnificence when the promise is indeed accomplished. Let us join in the desire of Adonai for Israel and participate in the hope of the apostles that we're reading about. Here are the words of Jeremiah, who prophesied in the difficult days before the temple was destroyed. Jeremiah 23, verse 5. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. The days of Messiah are without ending. And as long as Messiah lives, so does the promise. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. Jesus is the Messiah and the righteous one that will be called the righteousness of Israel. Hallelujah. Now, Eldris Booney is going to read our chapter, but before she does, Spencer McLean, stand up and let's pray in the hope of Messiah, in the hope of Israel, with our eyes fixated on the Lord, we lift up your name this evening, God. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for your promises to Israel. Lord, we thank you, thank you, mighty God, to see that these things will happen. Hallelujah. Lord, your word is true, and you will fulfill every word that is in this word. Lord, we love this way of life, God. Lord, we stand with your people, Lord. Lord, we stand with Israel, God. Lord, we say in this moment now, Lord, Lord, that your word is truth, God. And that we will walk this way out with your people, God. Let your name be lifted up tonight. In Jesus' name. Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. 
he replied. My companion, companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord, I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into to Damascus, because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Amen. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you, has chosen to know all his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now that you are waiting for, get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking. Quick, he said to me, leave Jerusalem immediately because they will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these men I know, these men know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of the ones who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him. He is not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered Paul to be taken to the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and questioned in order to find out why the people were shouting at him. And as they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do, he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a big price for my citizenship, but I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Yeah. Those who were about to question him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. The next day, since the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priest of all the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Wow. Come on. Is this a good chapter? Yeah. Yes. We are going to see encounters with Jesus in this chapter. Yes. Wow. We are going to have a defense of our faith in this chapter. Amen. Man, we're going to... Uh, look at the gems that will make you, equip you to be able to substantiate the divinity of Jesus from the Tanakh oh, wow. in this chapter. Amen. And we're going to learn the value of standing on strong convictions so that we're able to work as brothers and teams in this church. Amen. This is going to be exciting today. Amen. Brother Linton, let's get verse 1. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. The Greek word behind the English word defense is Apologia. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is also where the field of apologetics has been derived. The whole concept of apologia presumes that you are in a hostile environment 
and under attack to the extent that it is necessary to provide a defense for your beliefs and your actions. Remember the context here. Paul is bleeding and disheveled, and he and this was done by his brothers and his fathers. Wow. Okay? He is only in Jerusalem to bring offerings and complete his testimony as a Nazarite to his people. And he begins his address with the familial terms brothers and fathers. Now let me just make a parenthesis here. How many of us would have not referred to them as brothers and fathers after being beaten? Yeah. Yeah. This is Paul right here. He begins his address with the familiar terms brothers and fathers, and this whole scenario raises a very interesting question. Why is Paul having to offer a defense in this chapter? It's a good question. The assertion from the unbelieving Jewish population would have been based on misinterpreting passages like Deuteronomy 13. Mm. Remember, they have accused him of being against the people of Israel, against the law, and against the temple. So let's read Deuteronomy to get a sense of this. Deuteronomy 13, picking up in verse 6. If your brother, the (coughs) son of your mother, or your son or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend, who is as your own soul, entices you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Some of the gods of the people who are around you, whether near you or far off from you, from from the one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Wow. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people. From this passage, it is possible to discern seven very negative actions that are required by Israel regarding the apostate that is tempting the people with apostasy. Look at this next slide with us. Someone who leads you away from Adonai. Number one, you shall not yield to him. You shall not listen to him. Your eyes shall not pity him. You shall not spare him. You shall not conceal him. You shall kill him. Your hand shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. The false accusations against Paul are all made in general in the general assertion that Paul is the leading is leading people away from the God of Israel and the things prescribed in the law. If that assertion had been true, then Israel is required to show no mercy and go to the furthest extent to eliminate this evil from among them. However, the assertions were the furthest possible distortion of the truth. Paul was, in fact, acting as a close relative and friend whose own soul was united to the people of Israel and attempting to lead them into priestly service to Adonai. This should have meant that the following seven statements would have been defined, uh, would have defined their reception. Come on, we're gonna have fun with the slide. Yeah. A friend and witness who is as your own soul leading you to serve Adonai. Then you shall yield to him. Yeah! Then you shall listen to him. Yeah! Then your eyes shall be filled with compassion towards him. Yeah! 
conceal or protect him. Yes. Then you shall cause him to live. Yes. Then your hand shall be the first to be with him, and everyone else shall lend their hand to this work. So we know this is not what happened for the majority in the crowd. However, this is an accurate description of the relationship between Paul and his believing Jewish and Gentile co-workers. Might be worth asking yourself if this is an accurate description of you and your teammates. Wow. How did your last team unity meeting go? Oh, please don't answer out loud. That was rhetorical. Was everyone advocating to be led towards greater union with Adonai? Or were there other forces at work? Saints, this is an essential litmus test in everything that we do. We must ask ourselves if the advice we are giving or receiving is in a genuine effort to obtain greater union with Adonai, or have we been moved by false motives and satanic forces to serve other carnal or more personal interests? Wow, that's a good question, isn't it? Yes. Let's pick up in verse 2. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. Under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any <coughs> who are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as also the high priest and all the council testified. <coughs> I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. So we uh, we happen to be aware that it is the su- assumption of many translators that the language being spoken is Aramaic. Mm. However, the text literally says Hebridi. And we don't want to spend our valuable time defending the text from those who believe their interpretation is better than what the text actually says. Oh, wow. (laughs) The setting is that they are on the Temple Mount, where Hebrew is read and prayed every day. Paul asserts that he was brought up in this city, which conforms to everything that we have learned about the three schools within Judaism. You might remember, the first one is Beth Sefer, which takes place from about six to ten years of age, where the Torah would be committed to memory. This school was followed by the second one, Beth Talmud, which takes place from about the age of ten to fourteen years, where the Nevi'im and the Ketuvim would be committed to memory. Then finally, we get to the third school, Beth Midrash, which occurred between fourteen and thirty, for those select students who applied to and were received by a rabbi in order to take on the rabbi's yoke or way of life in teaching. Paul seems to be referring to having been taken in and taught by Rabbi Gamaliel, the grandson of Hillel, from at least the age 14 onward. This is why it says he was brought up in the city, trained in the city. For this and many other reasons, it seems most likely that Paul was actually speaking Hebrew in the seat of Jewish learning and in the shadows of Israel's greatest rabbis. Whatever language he was speaking, 
caused the people to fall into a hushed state as they listened. And it is clear that the Roman commander featured in this chapter did not understand him. We also pick up information not previously revealed to us in Acts regarding Paul's involvement in the deaths of multiple followers of the way, not just Stephen. When we get to Acts 26, this fact will be beyond dispute, and we will expand on the three testimonies of Paul recorded in Acts, and we will get to expound on the differences. For now, just keep the setting in mind as we move forward in verse 6. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? So again, we're, we are going to compare the three testimonies of Paul with an axe when we get to the 26th chapter. But it is worth noting that in the middle of the day, when the sun was in its highest and brightest position, the light from heaven was so bright, comparatively, that it stood in contrast to the brightness of the sun itself. Wow. In the middle of that event, the righteous one called the name of Saul twice. This puts Paul in a unique group of seven people recorded in all the Bible that had their name called twice from heaven. If you're interested in learning more about that, Review your notes from Acts chapter 9. On the last note, before we get into more serious things and progress to verse 8, the voice from heaven called out Paul's Hebrew name. Yeah. Shaul. Hebrew name. Shaul, Shaul, Saul, Saul. Notice he did not say Paul, Paul. That's good. That's pretty good. Let's go on to verse 8. Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth. Whom you are persecuting, your body. Now, this is very interesting. What was Paul's question to the Lord? Where are you, Lord? Yeah, he did not say, Where are you from, Lord? <laughs> we are going to remind you of something that we heavily emphasize in Acts 2 because it is vitally important to understanding these passages. Did y'all catch that? Yeah. Paul did not ask, Where are you from, Lord? His question is, Who are you? That's very pertinent to Jesus' answer. Yeah, so we, we're going to remind you of something that we heavily emphasize in Acts 2 because it is vitally important to understanding these passages in the same manner that the Jewish audience did. Amen. Learning to approach the text with the original audience in mind will unlock treasures for you that have been remained concealed to Western audiences through most of the last 2,000 years of preaching. So let's start with an updated slide from Acts 2 that will now include information on Acts 22. So this slide is titled The Nexter in Acts 2.22 and 22.8. The top portion shows you the, um, what do you call that? The transliteration? Transliteration, the interlinear. Yeah, the interlinear of Acts 2.22. It says, Jesus the Nazarene. So in Acts 2.22, we learned that Peter was not really identifying the location of Jesus' temporary home. In Acts 22.8, Jesus is not referring to a residence that he once occupied many years earlier. We have learned that this is a messianic title from Isaiah 11. All right. So many translations say Jesus of Nazareth. 
and others say Jesus the Nazarene. But what most readers fail to comprehend is that we are not referring to a mere geographical spot as much as a concept from the prophets that the name of the town commemorated. So let's read Isaiah 11 together because it is going to help you to gain a building block that will unlock the divinity of Jesus Christ to you later in this chapter. Come on. Wow. Come on. Isaiah 11, picking up in verse 1. Yeah. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord, notice all the caps there, yeah. the Spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall, rock, he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The town of Nazareth was named in commemoration of the messianic hope that a descendant of David would rise out of the stump of death and bear fruit because of the spirit of holiness within him and the spirit of the Lord or the spirit of Yahweh upon him. This messianic figure is portrayed as the king of Israel and the world throughout the Tanakh. And he is always associated with the righteous reign of Adonai upon the earth. So guys, you may remember this next slide regarding the Hebrew words in Isaiah 11. Yeah. See, it's titled the Netzer from Isaiah 11.1. The Messianic branch will appear as a shoot from the stump of David. The terms for shoot, koteh, or branch, Netzer, and root, sharesh, are all Messianic terminology. Mm. The name for Nazareth is Natsar, or Natsarath, and the term Nostri is a Talmudic and modern Hebrew term identifying a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. So the terms koteh, Netzer, and sharesh, are three ways, among many, to refer to the same thing. Much like saying, can we grab a beer, a cold one, or go get a brewski? A brewski. Yeah. This is still true in English when we say a stick, a limb, or a branch. We are referring to the same thing. <laughs> the town of Nazareth was named for the Messianic figure who would rise out of death and be a branch that produced other life-giving branches that bear fruit. Amen. These actions were all because the Spirit of Yahweh was upon the Messianic figure. This is reflected in nearly every Bible dictionary that dares to try to define the name Nazareth. On this slide called the Netzer, he shall be called a Nazarene. You see from the Easton's Bible Dictionary that they trace it through Hebrew and then Greek to form the name meaning shoot or sprout. Then in the Holman Bible Dictionary, they trace it just through Hebrew, meaning branch. <coughs> Thus to say, Jesus the Nazarene is not so much a geographical identifier as it was meant to identify him as the branch that came out of Jesse's dead stump and is producing life as well as other branches that bear fruit. Yeah. Good. When we understand this passage in its Hebrew light better, 
the interactions between Jesus and Paul, as well as the coming interactions with Ananias, convey far more meaning than most people usually derive from the text. This is the first building block tonight in understanding a clear statement about Jesus' divinity that is coming from within this chapter in our later verses. This building block is that Jesus is the Netzer of David's line that the prophets spoke about, and it is the first major facet in Paul's apologia to his audience of fellow Jews who were familiar with the prophecies that we are discussing. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. So we thought about reading to you from numerous places within the law, prophets, and writings so that we could illustrate just how often it was that many people heard a sound, but only a few perceived the meaning of the words. Additionally, we considered illustrating how similar Paul's experience was with the motif of Daniel or Ezekiel, where they were experiencing an ecstatic spiritual event, and others knew something was happening, but failed to discern the details that each of those men did. Instead, we are just going to read to you from John 12 and keep moving towards our second and most important building block in a statement about Jesus' divinity during Paul's apologia. You guys, listen to John 12, 27 with us. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. When the Almighty spoke to his son, everybody was aware that something happened, but only a remnant in the crowd were able to discern his words. In our chapter tonight, the righteous one is speaking to Paul in a crowd of men that can all see light and they can all hear a sound, but all of them could not discern the words that were being spoken. Oddly enough, all revelation seems to follow this type of format. That is true. (laughs) The whole crowd hears something, but only a remnant actually perceives the divine import of what has been said. Do you want to be in the remnant? Yes. If you want to be in the remnant, then you need to pray for ears that actually can hear and for eyes that actually can see the reality of the kingdom that is evident all around us. Amen. Verse 10. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. So during our session in Acts 2, we heavily emphasized the Jewishness of the people's response. What we mean is that after hearing Peter's sermon, their response was, Brothers, what shall we do? Well, notice that now in the assistance, Paul is giving his testimony from a first-person perspective, and his first response to the brilliant light and heavenly voice that identified Jesus as the Netzer was to ask, what shall I do, Lord? Come on. Well, it is worth noting 
Revelation demands an action in response. That's yeah. a good word. Anything less than an action will make you liable to the deceiving practice of believing that just because you know something, Ooh. it is the same as if you were actually doing it. Wow. wow. So the three testimonies of Paul recorded in Acts are all different from one another in subtle ways. In Acts 9, the account is given by Luke from a third-party perspective. In Acts 22 and Acts 26, the testimony is given by Paul himself in a first-person accounting. Later in this book, we will examine the three testimonies in detail, but for now, we want to highlight a difference between the verses that you just read and what is recorded in Acts 26, so that we can derive a few actions that each of us must in, uh, implement. Amen. In the accounting that you just heard, it appears as if Paul had no instruction from Jesus regarding his calling or future. Yeah. Acts 9 is similar in this regard, meaning that Acts 9 and Acts 22 make it sound as if Paul learned about his calling from Ananias. True. Let's read a small excerpt from Acts 26 so that we can get a larger perspective of what is actually happening. Are you ready for Acts 26? Yes! yes. We're going to begin in verse 15. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuted. But rise and stand up on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness. Come on, come on. To the things in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the peop your people and from the Gentiles, yeah. to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes that so they may turn from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins, and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Thanks. when you begin to emerge the details of each accounting, it becomes clear that Jesus told Paul many things about the scope of his calling in the initial encounter between the two of them. Additionally, when Paul and Ananias meet later, Ananias also has heard directly from the Lord wow. about various details of Paul's calling. Wow. And Ananias recounts them to Paul. That's a good friend. The reason that we're pointing this out is that it forms two witnesses to the heavenly revelation. Both men received instruction that included the same details, and the Lord arranged Ananias as a second witness to the details that Paul heard from the Lord's mouth. That's good. So this is really instructive regarding our relationships with our brothers or teammates. All too often in our team settings, the need for personal convictions that were given by God are being neglected. Mm. What we mean is that men are showing up to discuss important decisions in their own lives and they do not possess any genuine spiritual direction about the decision that came from the word of God or spirit of Adonai. Wow. This is honestly an abuse of the brotherhood and an abdication of your own responsibility to make spiritually led decisions about your own life. Paul received insight from the Lord himself and then received further confirmation from a loved brother who also had an experience with the Lord. Our brotherhood is designed by God to give you a more complete picture of his revelation. But our brotherhood is not designed
designed to alleviate your responsibility to have spiritual direction from the Lord's mouth to your very own ears. The brotherhood is a confirming and vetting body of trusted brothers to help you see things that you may have overlooked. It is not a substitute for you to hear from Adonai and possess your own spiritually driven convictions. So let's just say this clearly for posterity's sake. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> your brothers are not in your life so that you can avoid the responsibility to determine your spiritual direction. Your brothers are there to assist you yes! in examining motives and details that you may have overlooked in your zealous desire to determine Adonai's will. Accountability to your brothers is expressed in the earnest consideration of their counsel, but it is not expressed in the abdication of your responsibility to develop direction for your own life through the word and spirit. It seems like this is a good time for a proverb, so we're going to read sure Proverbs 27.9. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Earnest. You see, we are each other's friends and counselors. We are not each other's papacy. We are not each other's papal authority. The friend who is as your own soul is in your life to assist you in being led towards Adonai. No godly friendship seeks to replace or restrict his leading in your life. That's good. We will cover other aspects of this topic later in our evening. Yes, we in our will. Evening. We will. But just to mention it here, the sweetness of your friendships comes from the honest attempt to give truly spiritual guidance that was determined in the presence of God and not in your intellect. Wait, it's determined where, Justin? Woo, in the presence of Adonai. In church, where is it not determined? Your intellect. Wow, we're learning. We gotta keep moving because we are approaching something monumental yes. in our text. Lintel, get 11 through 14 for us. This is good. <laughs> My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You guys might not have noticed this, but we want you to notice that the Lord has spoken to Paul and to Ananias. Ananias is serving as a second witness to the validity of what has happened between Paul and Jesus. Ananias makes reference to Paul's chosen status, his possession of true knowledge of Adonai's will, and Paul's own vision of the righteous one, which included direct conveyance of words from his mouth to Paul's ears. Remember, this is all being recounted in an apologia to Paul's fellow literate Jews while standing on the Temple Mount. We're now going to move to our second building block. Yeah, let's do it. 
in a profound statement of the divinity of Jesus. The first building block was that Jesus was not just from Nazareth, but rather was the Netzer, the branch of David. Did you notice how Ananias referred to Jesus here? He called him the righteous one. Remember, guys, Jesus appeared to Ananias in a vision as well. And the term that Ananias used to describe Jesus is going to intersect with how Jesus identified himself to Paul. What we are going to do now is methodically examine this text so that you will gain something, hear me, that very few Western believers have the ability to actually do. This is demonstrate the the divinity of Jesus from the Older Testament. Almost all believers easily agree, oh yeah, yeah man, Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. But truthfully, very few can walk through the Tanakh and actually demonstrate how the New Testament writers came to their conclusion. Are you guys ready to move to our second building block within this text? One that forms unassailable proof of the divinity of Jesus Christ? Yes! What is about to happen is that you are going to see the relationship between the terms branch of David and the term the righteous one. Oh, man. Suspense is building. So there's a lot to unpack here, but Ananias is a devout observer of the law and undoubtedly spent hours looking into Israel's prophecies concerning the Messiah. Just like the audience of literary Jews that are hearing Paul's apologia. You may remember that Peter referred to the Messiah in seven different ways during his sermon before a similar group of people in Acts 3. So let's review the Messianic titles and then zero in on the term, the righteous one. These are seven titles that Peter uses in his sermon in Acts 3. One, the Netzer, the servant, the holy one, and what is the real one? The righteous one. The author of life, the Christ, and the prophet. So we notice that Ananias refers to Jesus as the righteous one. And nearly everything that we could find just implied that it was a reference to Jesus simply because he is righteous. <laughs> this left us unsatisfied. Yes. Yes. Unsatisfied. Because Peter used the same title for Jesus in Acts 3, and we saw it again in Acts 7 while Stephen was speaking. So let's review the instance with Stephen in Acts 7, picking up in 52. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, there it is, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Since we saw that Peter, when speaking to the Jews in Jerusalem, used the title, the righteous one, to identify Jesus, and Stephen used the title, the righteous one, when speaking of Jesus to the Jews in Jerusalem, we began to think that there may be more to Ananias' statement. The God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. We also began to think that there may be a specific reason that Paul recounts Ananias' words 
during his apologia to a literate Jewish audience. For sure there is. This led us to look more deeply into the title and see if there was something more profound than just saying, Jesus is righteous. As we did that, we came across the Apostle John doing exactly the same thing. So this is 1 John chapter 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Peter, Stephen, John, and Ananias all referred to Jesus as the righteous one, like it was an expected messianic title. Again, we looked into this, and all that was written on the subject suggests that this is due to the fact that Jesus is simply righteous. However, we were sure that something more profound was happening through the use of this title. More than that, if it is a specific messianic title, that literate Jews understood. We wanted to understand where it came from and why it was being used during Paul's apologia. Our studies began to point us in the right direction in passages like Isaiah 24 and Isaiah 53 because those chapters refer to the righteous one. However, it was not genuinely clear to us until something else happened. We began looking at the context of Peter, Stephen, and Paul's recounting of Ananias' statements, and they were all during addresses to a highly literate Jewish population. It became clear to us that this title had far more meaning than just being a reference to the righteous character of Jesus. So thankfully, (laughs) this church spent an entire year studying the book of Jeremiah. Yeah. Yeah! Late in the evening on Sunday, we remembered why the phrase stood out to us as profound. We realized why Peter, Stephen, John, and Ananias all referred to Jesus as the righteous one. They didn't just say that he was righteous. Rather, the term was, he is the righteous one. The only one. Would y'all like to look at Jeremiah with us? Yes. Jeremiah chapter 23 in verse 4. Second time you've heard it this evening, but it's the first time you'll understand it. (laughs) I will set shepherds over them. Who will care for them? I don't know, men like Peter, Stephen, Paul. Oh, okay. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them. And they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord, look at the word Lord, the capital L-O-R-D is our righteousness. Jesus answered Paul's question, who are you, Lord? By saying, I am Jesus, the Netzer, or branch of David. And then Ananias showed up and told Paul, you were chosen to know 
and see the righteous one. In this passage in Jeremiah, the first building block is that the messianic figure is being referred to as the branch of David. The second building block is that the messianic figure shall be called Yahweh is our righteousness. Now put yourself in the shoes of men like Peter, Stephen, John, and Ananias who read this prophecy from their youth all the way into adulthood. Come on. What human being could be born to David's line, become a king, and be called Yahweh our righteousness? They were raised in anticipation of a descendant of David that would rise from the dead stump of Jesse, be called a branch for Netzer, become a king that ruled in righteousness, and most profoundly would be called by the divine name as our or Israel's righteousness. This led them to search for the righteous one who would fulfill each of these things and was associated with and called by the divine name of God as Israel's righteousness. During Paul's apologia, he first established that Jesus is the Netzer or the branch by recounting his own initial testimony. Then he moved to the second building block by recounting Ananias' testimony that referred to Jesus as the righteous one. Now remember that Jews do not speak the divine name frivolously at any point in history. The same is true of today. And yet... Jeremiah said that the branch of David would be called by the full name of Yahweh, our righteousness. This is so profoundly unique in the Bible that it is a statement of divinity. Think of someone else called by the name of Yahweh. So rare. Adonai's name appears frequently within Hebrew names, but never like this. It's never called Yahweh is our righteousness. Consider this slide from our Jeremiah studies. Let's look at a few common Hebrew names. We have Elijah, Eliyahu, he is my God. We have Hezekiah, or Hezekiahu, the mighty God. We have Michael, or Michael, who, he who is like God. Or Samuel, Shmuel, asked or heard of God. We have Isaiah, or Yeshayahu, which means God saves. In every other case of a Jewish name, the name of God is contracted. You hear the Yah? Mm-hmm. It's contracted so as to specifically avoid speaking the divine name in its full form. Right. Normal Hebrew names exalt the character of God, but they do not imply that anyone would be called God or literally be called by the divine name Yahweh. The prophecy concerning the righteous one is entirely different. This messianic anticipation was of a descendant of David that would absolutely be called by the full and divine name of God as Yahweh our righteousness. Look, we put this on a slide back in the Jeremiah study, and it it is good that we review it now. This next slide, the top of the screen, you will see the Hebrew text of Jeremiah 23, verse 6. You can go from right to left here. He shall be called 
And then on the left, the Lord, our righteousness. Look at the text in the slide. Names that contain the divine element, Yahweh, always use it in abbreviated form. That's insightful, isn't it? Yes. Either at the beginning, represented by names such as Jehoram or Josiah, or at the end, represented by names ending in Yah or Jah. Only when speaking of the Messianic king is the Lord's name written in full. Only! Only! Only when speaking of the Messianic king is the Lord's name written in full. In a unique way, this king bears the divine name. Similar to the angel of the Lord in certain key contexts. This unique name becomes even more significant when we realize that the Lord's full name, the Tetragrammaton, Yahweh, is equating this king with Yahweh himself. In summary, Peter, Stephen, John, Ananias, all are all boldly, but very politely, pointing to Jesus, the Netzer, as the one man that shall be called Yahweh our righteousness. This is different than walking up and introducing yourself as Zedekiah, which has a very similar meaning in Hebrew. What is being suggested here is more like walking into a room and announcing, my name is Yahweh our righteousness. As in first name, Yahweh, and last name, our righteousness. This is a name that cannot be taken to mean anything other than divinity. He is the righteous one that can rightfully be called Yahweh our righteousness without having used the divine name in a blasphemous way. Each of these men went as far as they possibly could within their culture to assert the divinity of Jesus without pronouncing the Tetragrammaton. But they certainly illustrated it by saying, The Righteous One. Perhaps it was from Paul's original question, Who are you, Lord? And the response of Jesus and Ananias that Paul would later say so plainly in Colossians 2.9, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He's the righteous one. So the first building block that we've talked about was the identification of Jesus as the Netzer or the branch of David. This speaks of Jesus' human descent and kingly function. It is a shame that this fact is obscured to those who have not studied the culture and see the title Jesus the Nazarene as a statement about the location of a home that Jesus once occupied. As we seek to understand these titles in the manner that the original audience did, it becomes clear that the title itself is a reference to the human descent, kingly function, and resurrecting nature of Jesus as the Messiah. Now, the second building block was the identification of Jesus in association with the second facet of Jeremiah's prophecy. The Messiah, although he is a human descendant of David, is mystically referred to as Yahweh or Yehovah and will be our or Israel's righteousness. Many people in the Tanakh are called righteous. Isn't that true? Yes. Many people are descended from David. Yeah. 
A few were resurrected. That's true. However, no person in history fulfills the description of a descendant of David with a kingly function that rises out of death and is rightly called by and identified as Yahweh, our righteousness. This is why Peter, Stephen, Ananias, John, and Paul recounted or referred to Jesus as the righteous one. As the only one that could fulfill all these descriptors. Remember, Jews do not pronounce the divine name and usually substitute other words for the name where the divine name is implied. You can see this practice in common Jewish phrases like, blessed be he, which is a polite substitution for saying, blessed is Yahweh. Another example would be the seven times Isaiah records the phrase, I and he, in reference to Yahweh, and the five times that John records Jesus saying, I and he. In other words, Peter, Stephen, John, Ananias, and Paul all recounted and referred to Jeremiah's title for Messiah, which was Yahweh, our righteousness, by applying the term, the righteous one, to Jesus. None of these things could be understood outside of their Jewish cultural background, but within that background, the divinity of Jesus becomes abundantly clear. Now, if you'd like to dig into these things a little deeper, ask any of the pastors or look at the notes at the beginning of John and Pastor Eric's Bible. Or better yet, get a concordance and meticulously go through each of the passages that we referred to but did not read together. Amen. For now, let's keep moving in our text to verse 15. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking. Quick, he said to me, leave Jerusalem immediately, because they will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these men know that I went from one synagogue to another to a prison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. So again, there are so many things that could be said about these verses. But we're going to focus on an extremely practical application for your benefit. Yeah. (laughs) We just heard Paul say that he had another vision of Jesus within the temple in Jerusalem shortly after his transformation. During that vision, Jesus personally instructed Paul to leave Jerusalem. Paul's response is very Jewish. (laughs) Yeah, it is. He protested the direction of the Lord. This is almost funny. It mirrors Ananias' experience with the vision of the Lord, where Ananias also protested the direction of the Lord. Lord, do you know what this man has come here for? And Peter. Surely not, Lord! (laughs) The same peculiar reaction can be demonstrated in the lives of Abraham, Moses, Ezekiel, and the other prophets. In the Bible, this behavior is not usually presented as rebellious or disrespectful. This is likely because it involves an intimate relationship where discussion and protest are a part of the process of validating and implementing divine direction. You catch that? Intimate relationships where discussion and protest are part of the process of validating and implementing divine direction. Did y'all get that? 
in receiving this advice from the Brotherhood because of the passion that he felt regarding the genuine call that he had from God. This led Paul to go to the temple to pray. He wanted further guidance about the manner and the timing that he was to perform his service to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles that he loved so much. It was during that prayer time where Jesus confirmed the advice of the brotherhood. And even then, even then, even then, Paul initially protested the Lord's direction, which definitely means that he would have protested his brothers previously suggesting the same thing. So the thing to remember in these scenarios as they occur in your own life is that Adonai uses personal convictions to direct the course of a man and and, 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 you will not know whether your personal convictions were actually derived from the word and the spirit unless they are tested by your peers. True. This whole process involves intimate discussion of the revelation that you believe that you have had about yourself or regarding your brother. There should be healthy levels of both humility and courage of conviction during these kinds of discussions because everyone involved should be wrestling with the issues to determine Adonai's will. In the event that we are reading about Paul, evidently had a personal conviction to preach in Jerusalem. Yeah, I'd say that's true. Yeah. His brothers properly discerned that the application of this conviction was poorly timed. Also true. Yeah. Ultimately, Jesus settled the issue in the brotherhood by confirming the advice of the Ooh, brotherhood come on. through a direct appearance of Jesus to Paul. Come on! So can anyone think of another instance where the scenario played out in exactly the opposite fashion? Yeah. Yes. Oh, they're quiet. Yes. Yeah. Oh, help them. Paul had received a burden to go to Jerusalem in Acts 19, 19. that he described as being bound in the Spirit. And yet, the brotherhood discouraged him from, his, from this action on three separate occasions. Yeah. However, when they saw the depth and strength of the conviction, even after their protest, they all concluded that the Lord's will be done yeah. in Acts 21.14. Yeah. It seems like an appropriate time to do a few rapid Proverbs. Yeah. Proverbs 11.14 says, Where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in abundance of counselors, there is safety. Yeah. Safety. The kind of double honor that is given elders in the Bible involves you considering their advice twice as much as any person. Amen. This never means the abandonment of a God-given conviction. But it very well may mean the adjustment of its application. Yes. We should seek to have serious and deeply held biblical convictions and to be pliable in their application. Come on. This is the safety of the counsel that you receive from your teammates. We are not reinstituting a papal system. Yeah. We are validating our directions that we believe came from Adonai. Come on. Let's do another one. Let's do it. Proverbs 15, 22. Without counsel, plans fail. <laughs> but with many advisors, they succeed. Friends, without a loving challenge of your position, would you be able to identify the underlying motives 
that you didn't know were guiding you? No. no. Probably not. Definitely not. The benefit of the brotherhood is that they may be able to help you see the things that you would not have seen otherwise. Amen. In many cases, this review is even more important after the fact. Yep. If something seems to have failed in your life, do you have the maturity to honestly assess why it failed? See, the brotherhood helps us to identify when we were the cause and didn't even know it. Yeah. Additionally, the brotherhood helps us to identify when we were not the cause but didn't know that. Amen. None of these things can happen if each one of you do not start coming to your meetings with prayerfully determined direction and a willingness to engage in a spirited discussion that everyone might wrestle with the very will of God in your lives. All right, how about one more proverb? Yes. Let's do it. Yeah. Proverbs 20, verse 18. Plans are established by counsel. Mm. By wise guidance, wage war. Each of us are engaged in a war, and we were given each other to assist in the development of personal and corporate battle plans. Yes! This whole process is completely dependent on every man working carefully through the Word and the Spirit, then testing his findings against the findings of his brothers. Yeah! If this is not done, then the whole system denigrates into errors. Those that abdicate the responsibility to hear from God because they are cowards who possess no genuine direction, that's error number one. And then error number two is those who love to impose restriction on others. They love it! And like to give other people directives that they themselves would never accept from another human being. Did we get everybody yet? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Suffice it to say... That we must each approach every decision seeking personal guidance from the Word and the Spirit and then be pliable enough to realize that guidance may be given through the brotherhood of believers who is also seeking direction through the Word and the Spirit. Amen. Solid goal. This is good. We hope it's a tune-up. We're trying really hard. Brother Linton, let's go. Then the Lord said to me, go. I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him. He is not fit to live. Wow. It is very telling that the divinity of Messiah and testimony of Paul did not cause the level of, a, of upheaval that a statement about benefiting the Gentiles caused. Yeah, yeah that's telling. Yeah. This speaks to the level that the Torah of God had been twisted by the unbelieving Jewish population of this time period. Yeah. Remember that the entire calling of Israel was to become priestly figures yeah. to the nations around them. Yeah. And now, the thought that a Jew would want to raise to this calling and benefit the families of the earth, what's enough to create riotous behavior? This was not true of every Jew in the first century. No, it wasn't. Luke chapter 2, verse 32 includes Simeon. A man that prophesied that Jesus would become a light to the Gentiles. Oh, yeah. Acts 13.47 includes Paul and Barnabas being a light to the Gentiles. Yeah. The truth is that the prophets of old, of old 
directed Israel towards this kind of proper application of the Torah. And what we are seeing is the resistance of Jews to the purpose of true Judaism in the first century. Let's look at Isaiah 42 together. Let's do it. Starting in verse 6, states, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. To open the blind, the eyes that are blind. Amen. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. Yes, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Mm -hmm. So everything about the nature of the kingdom is selfless. Yeah, yeah. And for the benefit of others. Yeah. One of the most deceptive things in our planet is the subtlety of self-interest. Oh my. This is true of our approach to team meetings. Here we go. It is true of religion that seeks to be benefited but not to become a benefit to others. Ooh. The unbelieving population of Jerusalem had degenerated into a view of the Torah that was only applied as a benefit to their own lives. And the same phenomenon is all around us in this present environment. Yeah, it's true. true. As we conclude Paul's apologia, he has plainly set forth Jesus as the branch of David and the divine messianic figure that shall be called Yahweh, our righteousness. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> this is not to be misconstrued as Yahweh, my righteousness. <laughs> Everything about the Tanakh is aimed at the restoration of the whole world to righteousness under Yahweh. Amen. The part of the apologia that caused the biggest trauma was not regarding Messiah and his identity as Yeshua and the divine man. But rather, but rather, his inclusion that the Gentiles would hear the word from him. While we're disgusted by this carnal response, this is also an opportunity to examine our own hearts and identify the deceptive tendency to distort the way into a self-serving religion. Each of us ought to be walking in the footsteps of Jesus, who literally lived every moment of his earthly life in the service of his father and mankind. Men like Paul wrestled with his truth and came very close to imitating this example fully. Now, does your present course allow you to stay the same right now? Say yes or no. Is the way that you're living allow you to stay the same? No. 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 We must move towards imitating Yeshua, the Messiah. So let's finish the historical aspects of our text tonight. Verse 23. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and questioned in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. As they stretched him out to flog, to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen? who hasn't even been found guilty? This whole apologia has been taking place on the steps of the Antonia Fortress located in the northwest corner of the Temple Mount. We will likely discuss this location in greater depth next week. It's also clear that the commander is unaware of the details in Paul's speech, which is probably because it occurred in Hebrew. Yeah, definitely. 
If it had been in Aramaic, then you would have to assume that the Roman commander, who was responsible for keeping peace in the temple, uh, in the temple area, had no understanding of Aramaic, which was used as a common trade language when Greek was not possible. That's a good point. But that's probably not what you're most interested in from these verses. We know what you want to know. Namely, why did Paul refuse this beating while he readily accepted it for the sake of the gospel on other occasions? We're glad you asked because it's our last slide. <laughs> A very different kind of flogging. To flog or not to flog? Always the question. <laughs> this flogging is different from Paul's beating with rods at Philippi and on two other occasions, as 2 Corinthians 11 and Acts 16 outline. Nor was it the same as the Jewish 39 lashes administered with the long whips. Wow. A punishment Paul had received five times, according to 2 Corinthians 11. The Roman scourge was inflicted with shorter whips, embedded with pieces of metal or bones, and attached to a strong wooden handle. It could kill a man or leave him permanently crippled. Wow. This was the punishment Christ received, as Matthew 27 outlines, wow. leaving him unable to carry his cross. Wow. Our supposition is that Paul effectively used his Roman citizenship to avoid this kind of flogging because he knew that his own cross must still be carried all the way to Rome. If he had allowed himself to receive this kind of flogging, the most likely outcome would have been death at the worst, or at the least, severe disability. And Paul was well aware that his destiny still lay ahead of him in an appointment with Rome. By the way, the IVP Bible background commentary by Craig Keener and many other commentaries will tell you that the Portian and Julian laws forbade this kind of flogging of a Roman citizen without trial. The generally presumed penalty for doing so is death. This means that Paul's actions may have both prevented his flogging and saved the life of the Roman who was set to administer the flogging because he would be subsequently killed for doing so. Why don't we progress in the text for the Lento? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? He asked, this man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I have to pay a big price for my citizenship. But I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to question him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. <laughs> so most of your study notes will already contain notes about the methods of obtaining Roman citizenship. So we're not going to cover those there. I've noticed how impressed everybody's study notes are with themselves, that they can find the same thing that every other commentator has ever said in the history about the same section. <laughs> Instead, we're going to make an observation about the text and then also turn our attention to the only citizenship that genuinely matters to all of us. Amen. Amen. First, the problem was not that a Roman was put in chains in that kind of general sense. 
That was done every time a Roman was detained for any reason. What the commander is actually referring to is that he put Paul in chains for the purpose of an examination by the severest kind of flogging available. Now, rather than discuss the intricacies of Roman citizenship, which, as we've said, every commentator does, let's review the citizenship that we know Paul valued the most. This is found in Philippians 3.20 through chapter 4, verse 1. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Brothers and sisters, some of you have seen the righteous one. Many of you have heard words from his mouth, and all of you are gaining an understanding of his complete will. This puts you in a very unique class of people in the course of world history. You are our joy and our crown. We ask you to deeply consider the things that you are learning so that you will stand firm in the certainty of Yahweh, our righteousness, and his appearing on earth. There is no scar, no difficulty, no danger, or no dissension that will not be overwhelmed by the brightness of his appearing on the day of our resurrection as our bodies are transformed to be like his. Now is the time to take your heavenly citizenship seriously and behave as his priests on earth, reconciling men of every nation back to the glorious kingship of Yahweh, our righteousness, and to the heavenly citizenship that is his. Brother Linton, let's conclude our text for the evening. The next day, since the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. <laughs> we believe that we gave you guys a little bit more than popcorn this evening. Yeah. 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 So we're actually going to begin our foundations next Tuesday with this passage. So in light of that, you guys listen to what the pastors have to say. We yield this to them and we leave a small cliffhanger for you for next week. So in this one evening together, we started off with a very densely packed reminder, introduction that we had tonight that was reminding you about your own priesthood that basically summarized the major themes of the book of Hebrews and how that we're supposed to walk as Jesus walked, just like the entirety of the apocalypse, the revelation of Jesus Christ was listed to you. Subsequent to that, we then began to learn about the building blocks of Paul's apologia that first started off with the Netzer principle and then went and built on top of that with the righteous one. The summary of messianic work that was embodied in Jesus and as Paul was defending the faith. If that weren't enough, we then had a, we got taken to school 
about what it's like to actually operate in our teams, not being afraid, aka cowardly, to come with direction that you have personally derived from your time in the Word and by the Spirit, nor are we afraid, aka cowardly, to offer that before the brothers so that they can have a testing, a trial period, so that we can stand as men who are tested and approved in what we do. Is that just an amazing evening together? Chloe, would you put back up on the screen our last passage there in Philippians 3 and verse 20? I just want to read this again to you. But our citizenship is in heaven. You remember, like Ephesians 2 says, that citizenship that you were excluded from to begin with. That you were not allowed to have a part of. That you, who the uncircumcised, called that by the circumcision, you were apart from that, except Christ, the Messiah, came, divided, uh, tore down the dividing wall of hostility, and brought the two into one. Come on. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body. Do you see how that is not plural? Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body? Isn't that easy to read that as he will transform our lowly bodies? Making that completely about us, almost like we'd say Yahweh is my righteousness. To be like his glorious body. By the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I long, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. What these men have done is given us things that we should all not just be chewing on tonight, but they've really given you things that should impact the way you look at the rest of your walk with the Lord. So let's stand firm together in this love that God has. Stand with us. We are a church body that takes God's word serious. And by taking this serious, we're always heeding the call to rise to even greater heights of maturity. Maturity is priests. Maturity is men. Amen. Maturity is women. Hallelujah. The purpose of this is that God may get the glory from our deeds that we do in unity. Our aim is to reflect the righteous one. And walk in the footsteps of men who have given all of their lives to do so as well. And that aim looks like doing everything that the Father does, and speaking everything that the Father says. Every second. Constantly evaluating your heart position with Him and with those on your left and right. Saints, is this your aim? Yes. Yes. In doing so, we're going to operate within the unity that God requires of us. Definitely not abdicating and definitely not being hypocrites that impose 
regulations on others that we wouldn't receive from anybody else. But instead, we're going to do exactly what Jesus told Paul in that moment of conversion on the road to Damascus. Acts 26, 16 is a clear indication of it and echoes what we read tonight. And it begins with, rise. Amen. Rise in your constitution that you can operate in team. Rise in your will to do the will of the Father by getting rid of all fear and pride that stand in the way. And in light, you will have a surrounding of brothers that bear witness and testify what God's will is for you each and every day. Amen. Let's do something unified. Let's hold the hands of each other. Amen. So look, as we pray, we're going to treasure the gems that we have been given. Yes, we will. By putting them into practice. Amen. Amen. Are you ready, church? Yes. yes. Oh, that's kind of light. Are you ready? Yes. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your truth and your spirit breathing upon it, making it a reality to us tonight. We ask that this process continue. Well, may we see its reality in greater proportions from this second on as we reach forward in faith 